In an unregulated high-stakes environment like the property market, in a real estate-obsessed country like Australia, opinions and advice are never hard to come by. But how can you ensure that what you're hearing is good advice? One thing I kind of like to think about, you know, trying to future-proof that first home or, you know, placing importance on it, you know, being one of the most important properties that you buy is planning. So actually kind of thinking, where do I want to be? What are the steps that I sort of need to take to get there? And actually starting to sort of write that stuff down. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're talking to a professional advice giver and we're keen to understand how he sorts out the wheat from the chaff when it comes to expert intel about buying, owning and selling real estate. Daniel Bukovich is the money and advice editor at Domain. He writes about buying, selling, renovating and investing in property to help educate people whether they're just starting out or whether they've owned a property for a while. And he has the aim of helping to inspire confidence in all of life's property decisions. And we're on a shared mission. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Daniel, I just want to say, love your work and your articles. I guess becoming an advice editor, you know, how did you actually become one? And I mean, what calls do you need? How did you get that role at Domain? Because you've been doing it a few years now. Yeah, I've been there a few years now. Look, I come from a journalism background. I, I previously worked in some home magazines, um, I kind of from the, the renovation sort of side of things, I guess. Yeah. And I guess coming to Domain, you know, it was more of a sort of a day-to-day journalist sort of role. Most of the property journalism we do at Domain um, has historically sort of been that kind of reporting on what's happening in the market, you know, mm. what prices are doing, you know, what was the latest data saying, you know, what's happening at auctions, that kind of thing. And so with this sort of advice niche, I guess we've tried to carve out this, this sort of niche. And it differs from the other content in that rather than, you know, telling you what's happening in the market, it's more about, you know, how can you use that information that, that, that you've gathered to, to make that informed decision? You know, how, how can you learn how to take that next step, whatever it may be, you know, what strategies can you actually use to to start getting ahead in property? So, so that's kind of where I'm coming from, more of the sort of the, the practical side of things to, to actually make those real world decisions. I mean, it's so tempting to write those articles and they're like clickbait across every <laughs> media platform. You see them like daily and I just sort of yeah. shout at my screen. But you know, why did you really make that move away from things that are never going to be evergreen, things that are just crystal balling and just getting clicks and likes to actually articles that, you know, I've looked back at some of your articles like two, three years on, you know, are still very relevant to today. Look, I guess I guess where I'm coming from is, you know, I'm personally, you know, very interested in property. Before coming into this role, I would often have, you know, a lot of questions about, you know, what I should do here or, or, or you know, what's mm. the best way to approach this situation. And so I kind of like, I try to apply that kind of same I guess, philosophy when coming up with an idea for an article, you know, what's the best approach in this situation? What do the experts have to say on the topic? How can we kind of synthesize, you know, all the information that's out there as well as, you know, the data and what other evidence is out there? So I guess for me, it's, it's, it's all about sort of answering, you know, the key questions that people might have 
on their property journey, you obviously can't answer the more specific questions that someone might have. You know, yeah. you obviously kind of have to do it in a general way that it can apply to as many people as possible. But it's really about answering those questions and, and kind of posing a question and, and trying to come up with an answer that the reader will, you know, come away with with, with some kind of insight after spending yeah. you know, the two minutes reading the article that they'll be able to, you know, hopefully that'll help them make a, a decision along along their journey. I've liked your articles and, and I have to say that I read so much about property and most of the time I'm like, if it's <laughs> if it was on television, I'd be yelling at the screen, you know, <laughs> because most of it is self-interested, it's shallow, it's sort of designed like you, like Chris is saying, the clickbait, it's designed the, the quick wins, the, the magic formulas, all that palaver that does my head in and, and yours is always really pragmatic and you do talk to a lot of people. So I wonder, you must have mm. a bullshit antenna because I would imagine you still get fed a lot of shit that you have to sort out and to get to the practical stuff. I mean, you know, without giving any any names, <laughs> how, how do you do that? How did you do that without actually having a real estate background yourself? Oh, look, it's tricky, but you, you know, you, you do learn after a while, you know, I guess, you know, any expert out there, anyone in the property industry, anyone in any real industry, most people were selling something in, mm. in some kind of way. Yeah. And so you just have to keep that in mind when you're talking to these people, understanding, you know, what, what, what is their kind of uh, motivation here? What kind of, are they pushing someone towards some kind of product or some kind of type of property or, or whatever it may be? Yeah. I guess you just have to keep that front of mind anytime you're talking to anyone to understand, you know, what their motivations might be in, in, in giving what kind of advice. And, you know, I've done interviews with plenty of people where I've just thought, you know, I can't use any of this. This is this is just <laughs> simply not true. We're just not going to print it. So you, you just have to, I guess, you learn that over time. But I think keeping in mind, you know, what someone's motivations are in, in, in telling you something, and, and keeping that in mind when you when you're putting this stuff together. I mean, domain have lots of different avenues to their business, and they're always evolving. And domain home loans now, and you know, all sorts of different things. Right, uh, new property, off market. I saw recently as well. Mm-hmm. I mean. How are they sort of getting involved with what you do and are they sort of directing your bus or are you sort of in control of your journey and you can say, no, I don't believe in that type of investing, let's say it was new property or something like that. Can you sort of decide exactly what you put in your articles or domain sort of getting their fingers involved? Look, I, I, I guess I can. Um, so <laughs> that's a tricky one. Um, so <laughs> obviously, yeah, we do have various different aspects to the, to the business, um, but generally we maintain a sort of a, an editorial independence, I guess. And and so mm. it's never really a case of, you know, someone who's selling apartments coming to me and saying, Dan, you know, can you write this article about this apartment yeah. or, or, you know, can you write this article about this, this specific type of property or, or whatever it may be yeah. that just sort of doesn't really happen in my field. You know, obviously we are a, a business. We, we, we do have a, a suite of products, you know, the, the business, like any business exists to make money. Um, so, so all those things are happening, but I guess with, with the content, we try and keep that editorial independence at all times. Well, that's the key to journalism, isn't it? Is if you start to lose that independence and you start thinking about self-interest, then the quality of what you're reporting on changes, right? And so then people can sense that and then they don't want to read your stuff anymore. So it's sort of how do you manage that sort of, yeah, stay true to what you believe. I mean, have you built a bit of a property philosophy, I guess, yourself, where you've spoken to people over many years, lots of different experts, and maybe a, a, a few things have always rung true. And then when you've compared that to the market and what actually happens, and you've built your own sort of personal property philosophy, which is not, say, domain, but 
you know, Daniels? Look, I guess, you know, if, if I were to have any kind of philosophy, it's, it's sort of unfolding, I guess, and, and uh, you know, evolving. I wouldn't say I sort of would adhere to one sort of school of thought yep. only. Um, I think it's important to always be exposing yourself to lots of different sources and lots of different ideas because that way you're going to be able to make the, the right decision for your circumstances. But I think my property philosophy would have would have changed over time, I guess, a bit. I think probably coming into the, the whole property world, I was probably something that it did appeal to me earlier on was, you know, I think we've mentioned it a couple of times before, the the kind of the the people who are out there, you know, with the 10 properties, you know, by the age of 23, they've got a million dollars in the bank, they've got a Lamborghini, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But, you know, how realistic is that kind of scenario? And, and, and you know, how, how often can someone actually, you know, pull that off? Um, and so I, I guess, you know, myself coming coming into it, you know, it was, it was that idea of, you know, building wealth through property over time. Yeah. And then over time, I kind of started to think, you know, maybe this isn't the most effective way for everyone out there to, to be doing it. There's probably, you know, some more realistic strategies and options that people can apply to their, to their real world situations. <laughs> and that's interesting because, you know, I'm a property person and have been in property for 21 years. And it did take me quite some time to come around to that myself. And I guess when you're immersed in it, you, you don't even think about anything else. You know, property is not for everybody. And certainly that get rich quick scheme, it's always bothered me anyway. It doesn't sound right, you know, too good to be true, et cetera, et cetera. And then you dig a little bit and you find out that it's a lot of hot air and, and quite often some pretty catastrophic fails as well along the way. Mm, yeah. So on that, because you're the money and advice editor, on the money side of things, how do you wrap that into the property side of things? I mean, how do you sort of, you know, delineate or or, mer- or segue from one to the other? Look, I guess the, the money side of things has has a couple of aspects. I mean, when we talk about property in Australia, you know, people are obviously so obsessed with it, but it's also, you know, one of the main ways that people build wealth in Australia, if not the main way. And so I guess trying to think of that in a couple of ways. Um, one, you know, property can, can be used to, to build wealth. So how can you do that in kind of a, a sustainable and, and, and sensible way? But also, you know, pretty much everyone who's buying a property in Australia is is getting a home loan of some kind. They're borrowing. So that's, you know, uh, probably the, the main way that the money side of things comes into it. You know, how can you set up your financial situation in a way to maximize your, your chances of getting a home loan, maximize, you know, the borrowing sustainably to, to purchase a property, all that kind of thing. So so the, the money side of things comes in, into it in, in sort of, you know, I guess tips and strategies to, to set yourself up financially to purchase a property. Then once you've done that, to maintain that property and, and keep going and then be able to take your next step. And I guess what I'm trying to achieve with the money side of things is to bring these financial concepts to people who, who may not have any idea of how this kind of stuff works, explain mm. it in really simple language yep. um, in a way that someone can apply to their their personal situation. I mean, if you think back over some of your articles, I know maybe there's a hundred there, but you know, is there one or two where you think, like, I learned so much out of that and it's really shifted my direction in terms of, you know, my overall thinking about how oh, it all works? There'd be a few. Um, I'm just trying to think of a couple off the top of my head. I did one a while ago. Um, it was on... Um, how can we put this? It was, it was on um, tightly held neighborhoods, right? Yep. And yep. so I got this idea. Uh, I'd been looking at domain myself, um, you know, browsing the the, the map search, and uh, and I found there were, there were a couple of places, you know, in sort of really popular suburbs where there was just there was no green dots coming up. There was just nothing for sale, and I thought, why is no one selling in these areas? They, they seem to be really popular areas. What? Why? Yeah. Why are there no properties for sale? 
And it's it seemed like I had this hypothesis, oh, these people probably, they know they're onto a good thing, so they're not leaving. So I sort of tried to unpack this idea of these tightly held neighbourhoods. What makes a neighbourhood tightly held? Why do people kind of really want to live in these specific areas? And so, you know, in speaking to a couple of experts on topic, you know, a couple of themes sort of came to came to the top of the stack. I guess you know some of these these sort of areas tend to be, you know, if you look at you know how cities have and towns have have evolved, a lot of the kind of the older areas, the earlier sort of land release areas. I guess the best land would you know be the most expensive uh, sort of properties. So you, you you know you can kind of move back from that, and you know where, where this is this sort of the the oldest part of the town. What, what's what's what are the areas that are kind of mm. within walking distance from the shops and good schools and and all that kind of thing, all the kind of fundamentals that we talk about. Yeah, unpacking it that way in how in, in how a city has sort of evolved, but then you know looking at at other factors that might be at play. You know, one of the sort of pockets that I looked at. They had a, I think it was developed in like the 40s or 50s, but they had like a, a, a caveat over the the lots that, that they were selling that, that yeah. people had to spend a certain amount of money on on the house that they were building there. And so you, you end up getting these, you know, these, these big lots, you know, with, with great houses in a well-situated area and you kind of form this little pocket. And then once someone buys into that, they go, geez, this, this is, I basically found the best property ever. Why would I want to leave? And so it ends up sort of being tightly held. And so, yeah, so, so that's, that's one, one example of an article where I kind of want to try and unpack a concept and I, I learned quite a bit along the way. I mean, I was hopefully able to bit of that rub off on, on the readers. It's quite fascinating that, isn't it? I did a little bit of a, a research oh, years ago and family homes in all facing gardens mm. and trying to work out how often on average they would turn over versus those with south facing gardens. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and you know, similar hypothesis, you know, I think yeah. people won't move as as often and they didn't. The, mm. In the research that we did, it showed that the ones with south facing gardens are less comfortable to live in and probably people couldn't articulate that. They wouldn't even know really why they sold or while they were yep. itching to get out of there, you know. So it's sort of interesting stuff when you dig like this. And I know that some of those older areas with their caveats, the caveats actually insisted on certain building materials. Mm. It created a certain consistency of architecture in an area as well. And so those it's one reasons why heritage suburbs hold their value really well mm. because they don't become a mishmash. I often take clients down the streets with, you know, they, they want to knock down and rebuild and I take them down the street with it where people are allowed to knock down and rebuild. And I go, look at this, yeah. <laughs> dog's breakfast yeah. of a street. Yeah. <laughs> where, there was an article that you wrote some time ago about property forecasting and, and I always gravitate to those articles. I start storing them up as I'm thinking about what we're going to be putting in each year annual uh, full or forecaster report. Mm. So, you know, because you're obviously in the media, you're, you're a journalist and I imagine you get fed a lot of data, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes down to, you know, macro, right down to micro, I, what are some of the things you've been learning in terms of the information flow that comes to you as a journalist that you then have to work out how to disseminate? Cool. What's valuable for, for actual, in a pragmatic sense? Yeah, right. Um, I guess uh, in, in terms of sort of some of the, the data points out there, is, is, is that what you mean? Is it the, 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 the different data points that are available? Well, yeah. I mean, people, people look to data to make decisions. Hmm. And you're you're all about writing advice columns to you know give really practical advice to help people make decisions. And hmm. I guess what I'm yeah. asking you is, what have you learned about the difference between sort of what often people gravitate towards to make themselves feel better about whatever they're going to decide or to to lean on versus actually what's important? Yeah, right. Okay, so so I guess uh, I think I know the article you were talking about. We're looking at sort of leading and lagging indicators. Mm. And so I guess when we talk about 
price growth, that's a lagging indicator. That's talking about, you know, something that's sort of already happened. But that always gets to the big headlines, you know, house yeah. prices up 10%, 20%, whatever whatever it is. You know, these are the, the suburbs that are growing the most here, the suburbs that are going down the most, what, what, whatever it is. That, that's always the, the thing that's going to grab people's attention. But I guess the, the problem with that is that it's, it's talking about something that's happened in the past and it's not necessarily talking about what's happening in the future. And the future is, I guess, more difficult to predict. It's something that hasn't happened yet. So it's it's hard to kind of, you know, guess, you know, what's happening down the track. And so looking at the different data points that are, that are out there, there's, there's leading indicators and there's lagging indicators. Leading indicators being something like auction clearance rates, which, you know, tends to, um, I might get this wrong, but, you know, in, in Sydney, if, you know, auction clearance rates are, you know, around 70% or, or, or higher, you, you know, you're generally expecting an annual growth of something around, Ten percent, um, and and so, so I guess yeah, it's 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 understanding you know what what these different indicators actually mean and how you can kind of apply that to your own decision making. It is interesting about lead and lag indicators and what people want to know about, and it does seem to be that they want to know what's happened rather than well, they they think they want to know what's going to happen, but instead what they're looking at is what has happened and then mm. assuming that that means what is going to happen in the future. So whole, you know, price growth areas and top 10 lists and all that sort of stuff is, you know, very, very misleading. Now, how do you determine, I mean, Chris asked you earlier and you said you had a fairly free reign and it sounds like your own curiosity sort of leads you down the path of coming up with ideas for your stories. But yeah. do you, you know, what do you get asked about the most by buyers? And we're not just buyers, obviously renovators, because you're helping everybody. Hmm. Look, to be honest, the the question that gets asked most is what's what's property prices going to do? Like, what's going to happen in the future? <laughs> and that's the hardest one to answer. But I guess, oh, when do we get asked the most? Um, maybe I'll jump on the renovating topic. You know, ways to add value. That's that's always always a big one, especially mm. before sale, or, or or some of the you know the smarter ways to add value that aren't going to cost you a lot of money before sale. Yeah, but I mean, while you're on the renovation there, I mean. Have, has Domain got access to some amazing insights? Like I would just love to, I've said this on the podcast before, what, what you and REA basically get in terms of what people click on. You can see what really the interest is in property because you're the biggest portals. Mm. Have you seen that there's been a massive increase in renovation? We can actually see it on the street. I can see it through the amount of construction loans we're doing now is off the, off the radar, I guess. You know, you see a real demand and a continual demand for people to want to engage in renovating their homes, like in terms of their click-throughs, I guess? Yeah, we have seen, you know, in the past, basically since COVID, I guess a spike in interest in sort of renovating content. And it does, you know, come around at different times of the year as well. But, you know, that's obviously, yeah, as you said, happening on the street. You know, I think there was some, some data that came out uh, recently that was showing, going to maybe say this wrong, but about a 10% lift in, in renovating spending over the past yeah. Uh, year, so so you know it, it is actually happening, um, but we are you know we have seen increased engagement in in that kind of content, and, and, but but it is always something that's going to be always be popular. People always mm. interested in improving their homes. It's, it's not just you know this point in time. I guess when you think about it, you know there's always going to be a home that had its last renovation twenty or thirty or forty years ago, and and is starting to look tired. And that might be sort of happening now as well. I think that when we go back to, you know, yeah. the last major building boom being, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, those sort of properties are getting a bit tired now. So they're kind of coming around for renovations as well. So, but yeah, mm. it is it is always a topic that, that's, that's always going to generate quite a bit of interest. You said you take parents' money, but don't take their advice <laughs> was title. 
of one of your articles. Was that from personal experience? <laughs> that, was, that was a bit of a cheeky one. Um, but uh, look, look, we um, with that one, that was that was um, a while back. We had some um, survey data which basically showed for first home buyers specifically the first place that they would go to for property advice. The the, the biggest source of property advice was was people's parents, um, mm. and so kind of stood out as a bit of a bit of an interesting one. And that's that's actually ahead of people who do their own research first. So, you know, if someone decides to buy property, the first, according to the data, the, the first thing they're going to do is go and ask mum and dad, what should I do? And look, there's there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with advice from parents. I just, one thing I wanted to unpack with that one is, you know, why are people, you know, turning to their parents um, and, and and is there a problem with that? And, you know, potentially, if we look at, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about my parents. The last time they bought a house was in the, the early 70s. <laughs> and I think the property market may have changed a little bit since then. Um, mm. you know, the composition of cities has obviously changed since then as well. You yeah. know, they, they bought out in the suburbs and, and you know, back then the, it was all about getting away from the, the mm. gritty inner city and, and you know, what are we, four, almost 50 years later, you know, the the sort of inner city areas are, you know, always still proving to be popular. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is, you know, with, with advice from parents that might, may be skewed towards a certain mindset, there's also the potential for, you know, obviously it's no longer the big four banks, there's now the big five, the, the bank of mum and dad is up there as well. And so yeah. um, th- there's that potential with, you know, if you're being gifted money from your parents to, to help buy a house that, you know, there's sometimes a, you know, disclaimer that that comes with, you know, uh, pressure to follow the, the the advice that your parents yeah. are giving. So there's yeah. a couple of, you know, factors at play there that, that, that I just thought were worth unpacking. And, and I guess what I would probably want to see more of is, is, is more people who are, you know, when they're coming to make a decision, going out there and, and doing a lot of that research themselves before, you know, starting to get, you know, all these different uh, sources of information that, that, that might have some somewhat of a bias coming into it. <laughs> we uh, we've researched first home buyers too for Home Buyer Academy because yeah, and we've actually come up with the same thing. It's like almost the first place they go to is the parents, and you know, smart people will go, "Hang on a minute, yeah, this is pretty outdated." And what's their sample size like in terms of how many properties have they bought, and then how are they judging success? And I don't want to live like they live, and mm. <laughs> all those sort of things come into yeah. it. But it's the next thing is the friends and the workmates. Mm. And all the whole bunch of people following each other's advice and, and going out to new subdivisions and, and uh, the amount of people I've met that it's almost like they've all, the, like the Pied Piper has mm. <laughs> led people out. Just because one person's bought one property doesn't make them an expert. Mm. So I, where do you suggest people start their research? Well, look, again, it's about exposing yourself to a wide range of sources. So, you know, read as many mm. articles as you can, read as many, you know, books on the topic, you know, you just have to always keep in mind that that bias that we talked about earlier that, you know, whoever's writing it might have a point of view that they're trying to push, keeping that in mind. But I think thinking about it as if you're, you know, you're learning a subject in school or university or whatever, going out there and, and trying to just absorb as much information as possible before just going to one person and saying, hey, what should I do here? It's never a good idea to just ask, you know, one person and blindly follow their advice. You, you want to understand, you know, a, what are the range of options that are out there that, that I can use to get ahead or, or whatever it may be? And understanding all the different terminology, you know, there's, there's, there's so much jargon in the property world. We've, we've actually started a domain dictionary to, to try and unpack some of these confusing terms that are out there. So, so yeah, <laughs> getting that kind of broad knowledge and broad understanding and kind of 
you know, building up your own education in the property space before just blindly following someone's advice. Yeah, I mean, you also did an article which was, you know, why is the, f- the first property is the most important you'll buy? I mean, what were some of the sort of learnings? Because that, that, that is really so true mm. and that's why it's so dangerous of going to parents because, yes, they might be helping you financially, but, you know, they're not taking that sort of real understanding of getting to know, you know, your future, what different options you have, different areas, et cetera. You know, in the same vein, one of your other articles is like future-proof purchase, like a property that you won't outgrow. So, mm. you know, how does sort of that sort of really play in for first-time buyers and getting that in uh, so important, that sort of mindset? Yeah, I guess it's it's hard to kind of think really far down the track. Like it's hard to kind of, mm. you know, when you're in the moment when everyone around you is buying a property, you know, you, you're sick of renting, you just want to get a place for yourself, market's going crazy and you're thinking, oh, I've got to buy now before prices take off, blah, 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 all those kind of pressures that are out there. It's hard to start thinking, you know, hey, where do I actually want to be in a decade or, what, you know, I might be single now, but, you know, could be married in, in a couple of years, could have some kids, mm. you know, and I'll be stuck yep. with this, you know, property that <laughs> can't fit the whole family. And, you know, there's, there's, there's all those kind of considerations that, that it's hard to sort of think about in the moment. So I guess one thing I kind of like to think about, you know, trying to future-proof that first home or, you know, placing importance on it, you know, being one of the most important properties that you buy is planning. So actually kind of thinking, where do I want to be? What are the steps that I sort of need to take to get there and actually starting to sort of write that stuff down, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of mm. have a plan that's just in your head. You know, you actually have to kind of put pen to paper, you know, whatever form it may be, you know, it could be, could be a scrap of paper or it could be a, you know, massive spreadsheet. It's um, I think really important to sort of have a plan, at least some kind of roadmap an okay plan that you kind of, you know, revise over time is, is better than having no plan at all. Yeah. So I think when it comes to the first time, thinking about it in terms of, you know, what is, how is this going to help me achieve my next step? For some people, that first home might be the place they live for, you know, decades. Um, but, but these days yep. it seems, you know, more and more unlikely, you know, especially in the, in the big cities where people are, you know, might only be able to afford an apartment in, in, in where they want to live. And so you've got to think, you know, how does this apartment help me get to that next step? You know, is it going to grow in value as much as, uh, as much as it could? Or, or, you know, am I going to go and sell it in, seven years time or whatever it is and you know hasn't really grown in value and the property that i'm trying to get into has grown in value a lot more yeah so yeah it's about thinking you know far down the track actually starting to plan and writing that stuff down and you know tweaking that plan over time as as things change it's a really interesting one because even a client this week they came to me they wanted you know and on great incomes you know saved really hard and they said look we want to buy you know an apartment in the lower north shore and you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to been together, you know, are you thinking about having kids? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, in the next couple of years. I'm like, okay, do you think you might have more than one? Yeah, that's well, that's the plan. And I'm like, well, you know, and they're thinking about a two-bedroom apartment. So they were very like already so could see the runway was so short mm. on terms of this decision. And But in their mind, they hadn't thought about that at all. And as soon as I started to sort of talk it through and say, well, what would you do after that? And you know, do you think you'd have to, what, where would you move, where would you want to move to? And the seller probably want to stay in the area and, and they could potentially go and buy something a bit bigger. It's just that they were, it was mainly a confidence issue. Look, maybe let's just buy something a bit smaller today. And that's sometimes what people think when they could afford something a bit more, they had weight, lots of buffers, you know, in terms of their, one was a solicitor, so they could go in with a much smaller deposit. And we sort of just came up with this strategy and it made a lot more sense to them that they're not going to outgrow it. And, but you're right, like a lot of people haven't really thought that through. And as soon as we sort of visualized it and talked through repayments, et cetera, they said, well, you know what, that actually makes a lot more sense. 
and then they're out in the market. And the difference in that decision is huge because, you know, three or four years' time, yes, the apartment is probably a good apartment, but, you know, the problem is that the property that they want to upgrade into is going to be a lot more expensive and they're not going to be able to afford to keep their first property as an investment just because of capacity. So I know you did an article on that as well in terms of the challenges in keeping your first property as an investment property when you want to upgrade. What were some of the major learnings you you found in that? I guess from that one, one of the major learnings was that a lot of people want to do it, but a lot of people find they just can't. And I guess it comes down to that borrowing capacity issue mm. even an apartment in the capital cities are still going to be fairly expensive and then when you think oh, okay when it's time to upgrade the property you're upgrading to might be worth double what, what that apartment's yep. worth mm-hmm. so that means <laughs> significantly larger mortgage you know when you get to that sort of i guess upgrade market it gets really competitive so you need sort of every cent you can get. And if, if your, your borrowing capacity is sort of tied up in that first property, mm. your hands are tied, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to actually compete. So I guess a learning with that was that challenge on holding on to that one. And again, that comes to that idea of, you know, so many people have that idea in their mind of, you know, building a property, you know, portfolio over time, you know, the buy and hold strategy, just just, mm. just holding on to properties and, and letting yep. them grow in value. But if that property is holding you back from, from taking that next step, then it's not really a, a great outcome. I guess the the other thing that came through with that one was, you know, a first home buyer buying an apartment, for example, is that really going to be the best investment possible? Is that going to be the best way to spend that money? Um, is is that the best way to grow that you know, grow your grow your wealth? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure how many first home buyers out there are expert investors, and 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 whether the <laughs> the the you know when it comes to the asset selection whether they're really making that decision within an investment frame of mind or, or is, if, is it that they want to live near their friends or, or, or near the park or near, near, the, near the cafes or, or whatever it may be. You know, so I guess uh, trying to kind of decouple that idea of wanting to build that portfolio with kind of what are the real sort of goals in, in your life, in your personal life, you know, having, having a, a house that you, that you want to live in. So yeah, it's a lot of factors at play in that one. But I think one of the things that came through was it, it is difficult to do it. It might not be the best property to do it with. And you know, if you do have to sell that original property to to upgrade, you know, it doesn't rule out the idea of buying an investment later down the track. Yep. So there there are options, and it's not it's not kind of you know, do I become an investor and and, and grow a portfolio, or do I become a homeowner? You know, you're not closing off one option, I guess. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I think what you're really talking about here is myth busting. Mm. You know, that there are so many of these sort of often 
false beliefs. I talked earlier about, you know, opinions in property. Everyone's got one, it seems, and and lots of free advice out there. And there's all these beliefs around you can't sell your first property. You've always got to buy and hold that you're a failure if you if you have to sell your first property potentially. Yeah. I mean, and the idea that you just got to get in the market, that's, mm. a, that's another false belief. There's also this idea about I've, oh, you know, they're just so focused on the milestone or the goal of actually buying the first property that they haven't yeah. thought beyond that. They haven't lifted their eyes and looked at the horizon and all of those things. And I, I guess that, that the core of what you're doing is is trying to sort of cut, you know, hot, hot knife through butter and cut through all those those beliefs to get to the core of really what makes good decisions. Mm, mm. I mean, owner-occupier appeal, how does that sort of play into I know you've done an article on that before and, I mean, that's sort of in the same vein as that sort of tightly held suburbs. I mean, why do you think that matters so much? I think you and I have maybe spoken about this before in the past, Chris, in terms of who owns property in Australia, roughly two-thirds, you know, uh, owner-occupiers and, and a third investors um, yeah. of, of all the properties in Australia. So who's the bigger market there as their owner-occupiers? You, you've also got a couple of factors at play there. You know, if you're looking at kind of you're probably growing in value, um, home that appeals to a family, um, they're more established sort of buyer, potentially have two incomes. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot of there's that emotional attachment. So that, mm. that sort of property seems to have more of a potential to grow in value than, um, than a property that would sort of appeal to investor, which might be sort of on a more potentially sort of a lower budget or limited, limited budget, um, maybe more about the, the, the rental income and that kind of thing. Whereas I, I think mm. uh, one of the, the sort of bigger factors is, is how much that property can grow in value and, and, and what can push it up is the future buyers, I guess, ability to pay more for it, which mm. often comes down to, you know, how much, what's their income, what's their borrowing capacity and, and, and how much do they fall in love with that property? Emotion, and, yeah. Yeah, emotion, how much <laughs> yeah. are they prepared to spend you know, above yep. and beyond their budget to, to buy it? It's funny, I mean, uh, particularly when I was filming the show and I just because the very first series of the show we did was relocation, relocation, right? So, and quite, we had 10 couples and each one was buying an investment property and or a sort of second home and a home. And the ones buying the investment property was quite funny. They'd sort of say, oh, right, well, I need to go away and run the numbers. And, and it's just, quite often they'd say this. And I'd look at them, what numbers are you going to run? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it sounds like the thing to say because, well, this must be a numbers-based decision. I'm not going to be emotional about this. I'm yeah. going to run them. Run what? But, you know, fundamentally it's like, yeah, will someone else get excited about this property in the future and mm. compete for it? And that's that's sort of at, mm. at the core of it. But it doesn't sound as scientific. It's truer but not as scientific as running numbers. So <laughs> what um, I'm wondering, though, from your own property journey, you know, have you have you actually had to take your own advice, or you had to actually, you know, think or change the way you view mm. the whole property market and decisions around property? Has it helped you? Yes, I think I think if you you know look back at on the, all the articles that I've written, if you can probably trace my property journey through some of the to- <laughs> topics that I've written about, I, I, I must admit, yeah, you know, some some of what I write about is very very self serving, and that if I want a question answered for myself, I'll go out there and I'll I'll do the research and write the article to to do it. Yeah, yeah, I guess what one thing that yeah I, I sort of was was kind of drawn to the property space was was on that way to you know create wealth through through building a portfolio and whatnot, and and then. Yeah, probably did come into it with a bit of the, the the buy and hold sort of mentality, but then that's sort of I guess changed in in terms of you know 
what is sort of most important uh, in life? Is it holding on to these various, you know, investment properties that, that you know um, don't necessarily bring you joy, or is it you know getting into the getting into a, a home in an area that you want to live in, where, which you can you know, personalize and make your own, and, and blah blah blah, um, and, and and sort of, I guess um, what's sort of maybe changed in my mindset is you know yeah, prioritizing what is is more important, you know, for myself and for my family, and you know how how can I kind of um, I guess engineer my property journey to 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 achieve those goals rather than just you know trying to own the most properties or or, or, or whatever it may be. Because that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? It's a home at, at the core of it. That's what you know a property or a house or an apartment is meant to be. But mm. we've turned it into a, a, an investment vehicle, which is one of the I guess is a bit of a, a social argument going on about this at the moment. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious also just from the readers i mean what sort of feedback do you get oh i guess the main sort of way that we get feedback is is looking at you know the the numbers and looking at the data and you know what kind of topics i guess resonate the most i'd, I'd have to tra- trawl back through the, through the numbers to find out but um i think generally like so, some of the the topics that do resonate most uh, we hinted at them before sort of the, the myth busting topics to so, you know um or, mm. or, or or sort of challenging um you know a sort of a, a long-held belief you know i guess the, when we talked about the the, the parents giving advice that, that's a good example some of these topics are kind of i guess yeah challenge challenge a sort of a long-held belief they seem to resonate quite well um as well anything that you know, i guess appeals to first home buyers as well because the thirsty f- yeah, for information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're, they're they're starting out. They they obviously they're the most inexperienced of buyers out there in the market. They've never done it before. They're the ones that I guess uh, would respond more towards the the kind of educational pieces that are that are sort of unpacking a concept, explaining terminology, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that that that's that's a real focus point. You did one recently, or maybe it wasn't recently, but you did one on buying a unique property and. I think that's, a, that's an interesting topic because, you know, sometimes we'll get clients say, uh, we've fallen in love with this property and, you know, they're in love with it, right? And <laughs> I sort of look at it and go, I know you love it in my your head, but that is not going to appeal to a lot of people. Mm. You know, it's, maybe it's a weird block or it's a weird looking house. I've got two I've got two that come to my mind when you say that, Chris. One is yeah. what, up in Queensland, I think it's North Brisbane, North of Brisbane, it looks like a cluster of eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and horrible looking thing. And the other yeah. one is um, in Perth. I think it's on the market at the moment. It looks like a Besser block Taj Mahal. Like it's yeah. full on. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's someone who's um, obviously got a bit of land and a bit of money and they're just overcapitalizing. And a dream. And and, <laughs> but selling those is usually a tough thing. But if you fall in love with that sort of unique property, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> but sometimes clients fall in love with properties that, they don't appear to be that unique, but when you sort of look at lots of properties, you can easily see that. You know, maybe the floor plan is really weird. You know, bedrooms are split, you know, three levels apart. Or so you're talking bad, unique, not good, unique. Yeah, like things where it's just on the tin, it still looks like a house in a sort of good suburb, but ultimately it's going to turn off a lot of buyers. Maybe you know, in your article, you mentioned a lot of stairs, for example, Daniel. Mm. I mean, mm. what what are some of the learnings you found out of that article? Because I do think it's, you know, some people need, don't understand the problems with selling that property and one of your other articles, actually, that's one of your titles is that, you know, thinking about the saleability of your property when you, before you purchase it, which is yeah. an amazing mm. mindset. So 
what were some of the learnings you found just doing that sort of research? Yeah, I guess um, I guess the, on, on the unique um, point of view, it is all about the eventual future buyer. If, if it's not going to be the home that you live in for forever, it's about thinking about you know what the market in this in this particular area wants, and 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 is this property what that market wants? Um, I'm trying to think of one that another unique one. I had a had a tree growing in the center of it. Had a, had a giant gum tree growing <laughs> in it, and you, you just know that's like that's, my neighbor's property. Yeah. This this yeah. was like this was in the middle of the house. Like they built the house around yeah, this yeah. gum tree. Is this tree in Balmain? Uh, it might have been. It yeah, might have been. yeah. <laughs> recently sold. Oh, yeah. did it? Oh, okay, yeah. right. <laughs> if it's the one, if it's the same one. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually a funny one, if it's that same one, because I had a client come to me that really, really loved that property and it, it's really got some full-on drawbacks. Like, for instance, the garage isn't actually big enough to fit a car in and it's mm. got a wine cellar with a big glass door at the end of it. So mm. even if, and it's on a fairly steep driveway, so even if you could fit the car in it, maybe you've got a smart car and you can gun it up the driveway, you've got to be very careful you don't sort of go a bit too far and smash your wine cellar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really weird things like that. And then there's tree growing in the middle of it and it's like a fishbowl. It's like really exposed. You're, you've even got glass walkways. So you, if you walk from the bedroom to the bathroom, you really want to have some clothes on because anyone yeah. underneath can look up and really get a bit of an eyeful. Yeah. And, and so really <laughs> odd things like that. And so we, you know, really laboured the point with this client that was keen on buying it. And look, as it turned out, she didn't buy it. And it sold for, and it did struggle to sell, And it, but the market was not as hot as it is now. And you know, and then it's sold again. And I wonder if it's sold because it's really quite unlivable. And But they did make some money. Now, I compared their gain to others that have sold over the same period. It was not as good percentage-wise, but they'll be happy that they made a gain. They'll think they didn't do too badly, you know, mm. but the market actually, they lucked it with the market they conditions. They got saved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and we, that's we, if it's the same property, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. Um, when, when, yeah, I guess when the, when the market's rising, you can kind of forgive these these sort of mm. mistakes that people might make um uh, yeah. but, but but i guess you know you're talking about a unique property that that one it sounds like someone you know crafted that as, as their dream home where you know or maybe, maybe they're an architect no. i don't know no it, it was <laughs> built to sell in the first place oh, yeah wow. it's yeah, right. uh, you know and it was apparently an eastern suburbs architect or designer or something and and you know and the first foray into the inner west <laughs> it was just there all this and originally had an eastern suburbs agent as well uh second time around with a local agent but anyway it was just one of those houses that photographed quite well but yeah this whopping great tree in the middle of it and that's the least of the problems but do go on <laughs> hmm. I, I guess i guess the way i think about it is you know if you were to sell this property in, in seven years time who who can you see competing for mm. it? Is it is it the yeah. is it the family? Absolutely, you know, with the two incomes. Um, is it the is it the um, retired couple? Uh, you know, looking to downsize. Is it is it the, the 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 single person who wants their their perfect you know architecturally designed dream home? You know, mm. you know what is it and 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 what sort of budget do they probably have? How many yeah. people are going to be competing for it? What sort of yeah. competition is it going to have? And how does it compare with the properties around here? You know, yeah. what what kind of Buyers are coming through it in inspection. Does it have, you know, the, the queue of 60 people out the door? Does it have, you know, five people going, oh, that's a bit weird. It's got a tree growing in the middle of it, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> you got to think. <laughs> the curiosity value, they're not yeah. real buyers. They just want to yeah. see, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, so I guess you got to think, yeah, who is your eventual buyer and and is it going to create the competition that's going to, you know, be in line or, you know, exceed, you know, what the market's doing in the area. But I, I, I guess there's, there's also unique good. We should, we should talk about that yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for Scarcity. sure. Scarcity. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you guys can talk about some of the aspects that make property unique good. I don't know. Well, I was just saying, I was just going to say, I mean, that is ultimately an amazing mindset to go to, but it's hard to do that. So when you go to a property, you're thinking about what do you need? You know, what sort of your family dynamics or you know, maybe you've got a parent that maybe have to live with you, let's say. And so you've got a special need that maybe not a big portion mm. of the market need. And mm. so you're going and you're looking for this property that's going to suit your needs. But ultimately when you go and sell it, then you've got to find those people who have those same needs as you. And ideally you want as many different buyer pools as possible. And it's a really good sense check is when you're walking around that open home or you're at the auction and see like, what is this demographic of all these other people really wanting it and they're really emotional about it and really keen. And so if it's a, such a small subset, you won't know when you purchase it. It's just when you go sell it six years later it sits on the market for six months because mm. it really doesn't suit many people and you can get really punished in down markets if you have to sell at those points because, mm. you know, people know that. They can look online, they see it's been on the market for four months, you know, they know there's no rush. The real estate agent's desperate to sell it. He's telling you, he or she's telling <laughs> you way more than you need to know. They'll take anything, you know, those sort of, uh, it's a bargain, those sort of, um, you know, FOMO tactics. But yeah, I mean, on the unique side in terms of the property, you've written a lot about this, uh, Daniel, as well. I mean, you've we're interviewing you here. I mean, you've sort of talked a lot about period homes, you know, really being a great investment. I mean, that goes in the same vein. What's your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I think I think you touched on before, um, Veronica, with the scarcity aspect. Obviously, period homes, you know, they're, they're not building not building them anymore, mm. you know, unless we talk about, you know, properties that are eventually becoming period homes, you know, maybe something from the, the 60s might end up being a bit more desired, <laughs> you know, in a couple of decades' time. Everything doesn't go into fashion, though. I don't think, <laughs> no. um, you know, the high-rise apartments around the airport or the house land packages in the uh, outer city in 300 square meter blocks is going to be uh, really what everyone wants in, you know, 30, 40 years' time. You know, I think there's a, a bit of a danger in sort of that philosophy. You wrote a really cool article sort of called The Mullet House, which is <laughs> yep. something I try to explain. I don't actually, so I read that that title is is so true, right? I mean, the, the business at the front of the house, the bedrooms, the, the, you know, the bathrooms, those sort of things, and then the party at the back. I mean, what was sort of something you're learning is through <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, uh, I haven't read that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. The, I think, um, the, the, you know, the classic sort of terrace comes to mind that, that's been opened up to the back with a, with a structural renovation. So I guess, yeah, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, the kind of the nice preserved facade, the front and that, and that open sort of space at the back for, for entertaining <laughs> kind of sounds like a mullet. Yeah, look, I, I guess that you're getting, you know, the best of both worlds there. You're getting the, the, the scarcity with that, that period facade or, or, or the yeah. kind of the, the, mm-hmm. um, something that can't be replicated. But you're also getting um, with, with, the, with the, you know, a home that's sort of been structurally renovated, opened up, you know, you've got natural light coming in, you've got modern amenities, you've got, you know, heating and cooling and, and, and fancy kitchen and, and plenty of bathrooms and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So you're creating, you know, a, a, a really great family home and at the same time you, you maintain that scarcity so and you can you can just see in sort of the auction results or, or um yeah or you know the sales results probably like that that's you know been finished to a high standard that's always going to have huge amounts of competition and it might be you know a big undertaking to do a renovation like that you know it's obviously going to consume someone's life at some point but uh, I, I think you find a lot of the time people who do that, you know, in the right area, it'll pay off. Yeah. I think that's where the north-facing versus the south-facing really sort of drills home, I guess, with clients is they say, well, you know, where are you going to spend most of your time? What's at the back of the property? You know, that's where we're going to have our kitchen or our bathroom or our pool, I mean. Okay, well, where's the sun going to hit that? Well, it's not. It's going to hit the front of the property pretty much all day. 
And so it's kind of the opposite. You want that morning sun, ideally. So that's why I sort of east at the front, west at the back. Is that sort of what you like as well, Veronica, in terms of your next best aspect would be Well, it depends east. where you are because I tell you what, if you're in Brisbane, you do not want a yeah, west-facing garden. Yeah, or yeah. Or Melbourne sort of thing. We, we, I mean, the ideal is north-facing rear or northeast-facing rear, right? That's, yeah. that's the ideal. But, I mean, the thing is that a, if the fall of the land is important, you know, you could be on the higher side of the street with north-facing rear but it actually the slope mm. falls away and the, and – or it goes up and the house behind you, which has a south-facing rear, but it actually still over overlooks your gut. I mean, you know what I mean? There's, there's yeah, the actual individual yeah. blocks can have different problems. And so south-facing rear with the sloping away from, from the front of the house is like the double whammy, you know? Mm, yeah. <laughs> but some some properties I've seen with a slightly raised, elevated south-facing rear actually gets lots of sun. So I think you just got to – and then you've got to be mindful of what your neighbours can do. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Or well, even if you got a north facing, you could have a huge, you know, conglomerate of trees. I mean, we had this yeah. conversation with a client yesterday. I'm like, yeah, it's north facing backyard. I'm like, yeah, but have you done the satellite? Have you sort of looked out the back? He's like, yeah, it looks like a lot of trees. She's like, oh, yeah, right. And I said, well, you know, you've got to really suss that out because, you know, that north facing might not be as sunny as you thought. Um, Daniel, have you got a property Dumbo for us? Oh, I um, I've I've got one. Um, I I don't actually know the the, the person. I, um, so, um, but, but it's it's a um, it's, sounds like you. <laughs> it's a, someone I know, but I don't so, really someone know. I know, a friend of a friend. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, a couple of years back. I was looking at a property for sale. Um, it was in a fairly desirable inner city suburb. Um, it was a a little two bedroom Victorian terrace. Had a you know period facade. It was, you know, sort of tired, needed a bit of work, but it was it was a bit of a weird position. It was sort of on a semi-main road. It was, um, it was, you know, right in the village, right near the shops and everything. But it was actually wedged between two different shops, so you know, it was sort of set back. <laughs> so, so a bit, bit of a weird. Um, and you know, sounds um, like unique, not scarce. <laughs> it was, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was it was very unique. Um, it, it, the, the thing that sort of you know turned me off in, in the end, um, or, or a number of things, but the, the main thing was it was had um, industrial zoning, which was quite weird mm. for the area. But it was you know it was, uh, a couple of the surrounding properties also had that. Um, but you know, I, I was a bit you know concerned. Or uh, you know, you might not be able to do. The kind of renovations that you want to do potentially, um, you know, so you know, inquire with council and 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 um, the conveyancer, and, and and you know, and end up being you know, a bit, bit of a risky option. Not really the best option. Probably wouldn't have a you know pool of buyers, you know, if you go to resell. But anyway, look, someone did buy the property and probably got it for you know decent price. But I noticed a couple of months later that they they were doing some work on the property and. You know, a couple of months after that, there was it was up for sale, and so you know, the, the person's gone to to try and flip the thing. So I went online, went, went on domain, had a look at the listing, and sure enough, they'd done you know a fairly extensive renovation of the property. That they, they'd added a, a bedroom into the attic space, they'd added another bathroom, they made it open plan and open up to the rear, um, but sort of kept it within the the envelope of the building. Um, and I thought, oh, that's that's great, you know, um, that that property's looking looking a lot better. But it, it didn't sell very quickly. It was it was it was sort of on the market for a while, and it was lingering. It was lingering, lingering, mm. and then and then all of a sudden it went off the market, and it, and it didn't sell. And I thought, oh, why, why is no one wanting to buy this property? Is it, is it the zoning? What is it? <laughs> and so I, I, I was just curious. I, I, I stay. I, I kind of followed the property and did a bit more digging. And over time, um, I, I, what I, what I sort of found out was that I think what's happened is 
someone's gone to to um, buy that property. They've they've done their due diligence. They've they've gone to the council, um, and, and, you know, asked about the zoning and things like that. And um, and <laughs> the the council have then gone. Uh, okay, so this this property, you know, it looked like this, you know, I think it was 2016 or 2017 or whatever, and it looks like this now. Hang on, we don't have a record of any <laughs> development application for this property. No. Um, so, so the owner has then, uh, so, so the, the council has then gone, you know, hang on, what's what's going on here? They've, they've, they've pinged the owner. Um, the owner's had to take the property off the market. Oh, um, yeah. they, they've been issued with a, a, a work order to, to correct various well, yeah. well, Number one, you know, why have you done this without without any kind of approval? Um, number two, I think that there was something wrong with the staircase. You know, I think they had to replace the whole staircase. Oh. So it was, it was you know, they, they had to, you know, redo all this expensive renovation. They would have lost, you know, the marketing costs associated with that. And eventually they, they, they redid all, the, all these things and, and they put the property on the market again and eventually it did actually sell. And so I was trying to do the numbers and I was thinking, okay, I, th- I think they made something like, I th- I, they did add a bedroom so the property went up in value. Um, I think there was... They, they sold it for two hundred fifty thousand dollars more than they paid for it, which which <laughs> doesn't sound like much of a dumbo. But um, but you know that renovation would have cost one hundred fifty thousand. You know, stamp fee yeah. would have been sixty thousand. Agent fees would have been twenty to twenty five. <laughs> you know, the DA would have cost them a couple of grand, and I don't know if yeah. they got a fine or anything like that. So so by the end of it, I think it took them two years in total. They would have maybe scraped by with with, with a couple of grand, or, or they may, maybe were in the hole. I, I don't know. They, they might have been a, a builder themselves and, and you know able to do it a, a, a bit cheaper. So, but but look, for, for two years of work and stress and heartache, um, to, what a to, nightmare! To, yeah, it doesn't sound like like I think they would have been a bit more successful had they have you know got approval in the first place and, and tried to go by the book. If, I can't. I just couldn't believe someone would try and do a, a structural renovation of a property. You know, adding rooms. You know, changing the layout, putting new doors and windows and things in, without any kind of approval. It's, it just blows the mind. So, yeah, that's, that's a great, dumbo. <laughs> great Dumbo. And there are there's a certain you know school of people or school of thought who think that asking for forgiveness is way better than asking for permission. Mm. <laughs> and it sounds like that's one of them. Oh, my God. Well, great Dumbo and great stories around, you know, what's led you to write the articles that you've written, I should say, and, you know, really, I guess, how you sort out good advice from bad advice, which is very interesting. But I also think, you know, the way that your mind works has helped you, to be quite honest. You've obviously got an inquisitive mind. You've obviously gone, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. And off you go, you know, digging. And I tell Mm. you what, so many buyers will benefit from just a little bit of that inquisitivity when they're doing their research. Cheers. Thanks. Absolutely. Curiosity is the most important thing, I think, especially when you're starting your journey, because you don't have that, then, you know, you'll get burnt pretty easily in property. You know, there's so many people out there pitching so many different strategies. We had a call with a client yesterday and he literally just went through and said, oh, I've been spoke to this person. They said this and they spoke to this person. They said that. And, they, you know, I'm just confused. What does it all mean? And what was amazing there is he hadn't made any major decisions. He was just sort of fact checking and finding and speaking to all these different people. And then they finally landed with us. I might go somewhere else after us, but it was, a, it was an interesting sort of, learning process and uh, I really hope, encourage people to do that more and more just keep on getting good sources of information so thank you Daniel I appreciate your articles thanks for coming and sharing your time with us no worries thanks for having me we want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is 
Just want to elaborate a little bit more on that concept of owner-occupier appeal and the importance of it. I mean, it's one of those things that investors feel like they shouldn't buy with emotion, you know, but the reality is that you need to have a lot of understanding around the emotion around buying property in order to be successful at it because the fact is that people do buy with their emotions and even investors, if they're fearful and therefore they're trying to allay that fear by, you know, in rabbit ears here, doing the numbers, that's fear and fear is an emotion, right? So that that emotion is driving them to try to find research and try to find data to actually support a decision. But the reality is that understanding what dynamics are in a local market, and we talk about this all the time, about understanding the micro details, you know, drilling down into a market, understanding local dynamics and understanding what it is about different types of property in any given suburb that local buyers and owner occupiers want and what they will actually pay a premium for. So I might be repeating myself, we've probably done this sort of boot camp many, 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 many times, but the reality is that understanding what the majority of buyers in a particular area because it will change from suburb to suburb. You know, you're looking for a scarce property and this is where the sort of dichotomy of scarcity and uniqueness and all that sort of stuff comes into it. People think it's scarce, then that means that there can't be many of them around. But like if you go to Balmain, for instance, and look for a period home, well, there's lots of period homes there. It's just that the ones with really good floor plans and great renovations and a good aspect, for instance, they don't change hands very often. And that's where mm-hmm. the scarcity comes in. Doesn't doesn't come in because they don't exist. It comes in because they don't change hands and it comes in because when they do change hands, there's always lots of people that want them. And so that's really fundamentally the the secret of capital growth and the secret of success when it comes to investing. Yeah. And I think you'll find at just different points in time, like there'll be lots of terraces for sale in Balmain, for example, on Darling Street or on Mullins Road or on, you know, certain roads in certain suburbs that, you know, if you don't have that local knowledge, you just don't know what it's like and what the locals don't want to live on those roads or, or very close to those roads. So, yeah, you could get a terrace in that suburb and, yes, you go, I'm in that suburb and I get that suburb's growth. And you may get the suburb's growth if you buy it really well in a depressed market and you sell it like, you know, 2021 like it is now. Arguably, you may do just as well as the good properties. But so even if you think you've got scarcity, it's the more deep you go, the better really. And it's sort of just having that real, not perfectionist mindset because that's impossible, but it's really saying no to most properties because of some things you just don't want to compromise on. Yeah. And it's hard, particularly in a rising market where there's loads of FOMO, people feel the pull to compromise. And look, you're always going to have to compromise. You know, there is no actual perfect property, but it's what you compromise on that, that matters. Please join us for our next episode. We've got a special on renovating. How do you renovate without blowing the budget and overcapitalizing? How lucrative is flipping property? Well, we have a guest coming on to share the secrets of success in the renovating and building game, and that is Rebecca Morgan, co-founder of the Build Her Collective. Join us. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regret. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. 
Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.